0: Once upon a time, 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 once upon a time. Hello, everyone, welcome to Dad's Read Princess Stories Bonus Episode. I'm your host, RPJ. And this week, you heard the tale of Cinderella, read by Charles Ross, from the fairy tale book Power to the Princess. And if you haven't, then I highly suggest you go back and listen to that episode. It's pretty great. Because in this bonus episode, I sit down and chat with author of Power to the Princess, along with many other books, Vita Murrow. Vita Murrow is a writer, artist, and mother. Vita has a quirky sense of humor and an eye for the weird. When she was in the 8th grade, she was rejected from a special writer's retreat for kids. But that didn't stop her from pursuing her passion. Since then, Vita has been a teacher, a producer, a filmmaker, a program director, and even a puppeteer. Vita loves working with other artists and writers and is always looking to share a chocolate chip cookie with someone. Please enjoy this chat with author Vita Murrow. Where you will learn about how and why she got into the world of fairy tale storytelling, the process of writing a fairy tale book in these times, and what she's working on next.
1: I mean, I always feel like as an artist, my job is about conversations and listening. Um, and so I'm always just looking for what are the new ways in which I can do that, with I can do that with myself ways I can do that with new people and I think writing has actually become a really interesting space it gives it allows me to have kind of like a private conversation with someone who I've never met but who's reading my work and I feel like um hopefully they're sort of instigating their own dialogue in their own space and within themselves and it's still kind of a conversation I get to be a part of even though I'm not directly there um I think that's a long part of Um, our human connection to storytelling, too, is it's this kind of extended dialogue that you get to have through generations or places or spaces or different voices, Um, even if you're not actually present for all of that. You get to kind of send these things out into the world. So um, how did you discover my
0: book? I was in a... Oh, it was on Instagram. Uh, There was a local bookstore that had just posted some photos of some new books that came in and that was one of them and they just posted the photo. And so I took a screenshot and I ran down and there was two copies left and I just bought it on the whim and just went, you know what, I'm just going to do it because I'm with the podcast, just trying to find anything I can that's different and new and not just these, you know, older tales of fairy tales, but what are the newer incarnations of this? And so I just picked it up and ran home and read it all. And was like, these, this is, it's fascinating. I absolutely loved it. And I just grabbed the, the other one. Oh, thank you. The Heroes book, after you'd mentioned it. What I love about it is how they take these normal uh, fairy tales that we know and then instantly flip it in a way. Beauty and the Beast is the, the first one. And I yeah. love right away, it's just these people that go, no, nah, I'm not accepting that. <laughs> you know, that they just go, no, I'm not gonna do this. You know, just becomes a police officer. I love, I love, uh, it made me so happy when it got to the, de- uh, not the detective, but the sergeant, is it? the? <laughs> Maybe. And I'm reading it like a male sergeant. This, like I instantly, ah, because, because the pro, mm-hmm. like, because it doesn't say she, he, or okay. they, them, it just says the sergeant, or I, I can't remember, it's inspector or sergeant. And so I just started yeah. reading it in this, like, well, you know, I'm this and this and this. Uh-huh. And then it suddenly goes, she. And I went, oh, <laughs> oh my God, is it she? Like, oh, there's a woman. Oh, that's so great. And went back and reread <laughs> it. And I was so oh, excited. So glad. It was so great and a, refreshing.
1: That's oh. such a cool anecdote. I think the books are challenging for me because I actually don't believe that people are binary, but I'm trying to interrogate issues that are part of binary systems of of narrative and of culture. And so in order to do that, I do have to sort of, or I chose to, to play in these two two different texts, these two sort of different canons of story, um, because they each kind of have their own tradition. And to be honest, when I wrote the first one, Uh, we didn't know that there would be a second one. It wasn't like a larger conceived series. It was, we wrote the first one and it was done. I thought, oh my gosh, there are so many stories that star typically expressed male characters that I want to do the same treatment to. Where I was like, oh, if I'm really... Thinking about intersectionality in these stories. I want to do this to a whole other group of stories. So that's how they ended up as two separate volumes. But in many ways, I wish they were sort of one big thing. Um, But I also want to meet the reader where they are. And people are really used to these highly, highly gendered stories um, that really do deserve their own taking apart and putting back together. It's kind of what I think about my my role is in these stories is to take them apart and put them back together with the pieces that um, are really important to have there, whether I'm playing with changing them or keeping them kind of the same as they have been for thousands of years. And, or if I'm just like annexing huge swaths of ideas and action and history that I in my own assertion and opinion, feel like the stories can do without. Right. Yeah, it's fun to hear your, an adult take on, um, take on the books and actually an adult take on the books that isn't like in spite of being a podcast where dads read to the young people in their lives, um, from an adult who actually is not parenting. Um, that's actually a really refreshing and different kind of audience (laughs) to hear hear. because when we when the book came out we also my editor Katie and I had this conversation like who's the audience for this book and it was sort of like yes young readers yes parents yes educators yes librarians but we work hard to make books that are also really beautiful objects and so we had this sort of um third market that was like kind of we called them the cool aunts and uncle market um that is just like a generation of people who, yeah, love Disney or love fairy tale or lore or legend or sort of this canon, um, but also are ready to see it do something a little bit different. Um, and there's a lot of nostalgia too. that. That's a part of it. That's part of why the books look like old treasuries why they're linen bound, where they have the gold foil. There is this understanding that hopefully I'm joining a uh, a sort of tradition of this kind of storytelling that sometimes looks a certain way. We're kind of playing with it a little bit um, in these books.
0: Why, like, why did you sort of gravitate towards uh, like the fairy tales? Was that something that you've always like been into? Or is that, like how much of that was connected already into your life? And how much of that is something that was sort of discovered Into your writing, is this something that you were like, "Oh, I've always wanted to write about this," or was it kind of like stumbled upon? And you know, that's how do you how do you get to that book? How do you get (laughs) to this area?
1: Yeah, I started by saying no to this project. I was in a space in my life where I um, had had a lot of responsibility, and I walked or I decided I wanted to take us some space from that responsibility, and so I. Should sort of said no to another part of my career. And so I was really enjoying saying no to things. <laughs> and someone pitched this to me, someone really wonderful who knows me really well. And I was like, oh no, thank you. It's not for me. <laughs> and she was like, actually, no, I'm pretty sure it is. And kind of coaxed me into really listening and being open to their vision of a treasury of stories that they wanted to make as a, uh, as a young publisher. And I said, no, again, <laughs> I was like, oh no, And I even tried to find other books that were already like it. I was like, someone's already made this book. Look, here's some other kind of like feminist takedowns of, um, of fairy tales. And, and they came back to me and they said, no, what you could make could be really different. And I said, okay, I trust you. And so I think for me, this project really came about through the access point of a working friendship and relationship with someone who really knew me and knows how to push me and challenge me. And so every time I talk with youngsters or schools or young writers, I really try and kind of demystify this kind of cloaked world of publishing um, to one that's really just about the network of peers that you have in your life. Um, and that sometimes when you let someone really know your work and know who you are, then they start to see points of intersection for you. And so my friend, Rachel Williams, who is the publisher at the time at um, Francis Lincoln Quarto Group, she and I were taking a walk in like an old fort on a very hot day, actually just like this, probably three or four years ago. And she pitched this to me and she just was like really relentless. And she said, I get, she uh, Francis Lincoln is located in London. She said, when I get back to London, I'm going to send you some concrete stuff for you to look at. And she just kind of won me over. But I will say this is kind of a theme that's happened for me in my life where there's been just a moment of transition and I've really leaned on A friend and someone who I really know and trust to help encourage me and invite me to take new risks. And this has happened like again and again. So it's sort of no surprise to me that when I left my old job and was looking for what was next, that someone I trust was like, hey, I have this instinct about you. I think you can do this. And she was right. I really, it was hard. At first, to figure out exactly what I wanted to do and what my relationship was to fairy tales, I think I definitely had a very Disney-mediated experience of fairy tales in ways that were both wonderful and nostalgic and fun, and tied me into uh, just sort of a cultural canon of conversation and references, but also in ways that I was sort of uncomfortable about and for all kinds of reasons, um, most of which had to do with this oversimplification of what relationships are like between people, um, between men and women, between parents and children, um, between children and children. Um, Something that's a really interesting part of fairy tales and folklore are what they ask the reader or the listener or the viewer to do and that is to take on a tremendous amount of responsibility which is not necessarily true in all stories there's a reason why parental figures are removed early in these stories and it's so that the reader the viewer assumes that role and takes on a ton of investment in the characters in the story and that's kind of unique to fairy tales and folklore. Um, and it's something that's been borrowed in other kinds of storytelling and other epic tales and sagas and thematic storytelling in fantasy and science fiction in all kinds of television and, and theater and, um, and film. But so I, yeah, I was a kind of a reluctant, to this and then it ended up being kind of a lovely muse. But I really leaned on lots of experts, people who know, I think it's one of those things when I'm starting something new and I don't know anything about it or I sense that I'm a little limited in my point of view. I have a network of librarians that I'm really fond of and I wrote um, to three of them and was like, help! I signed on to do this book and who do I need to talk to? That's kind of always my first question when I start something new. Who do I need to be in a relationship with? Who do I not know that I need to know? And they were like, ah, you need to know this person, Janet Daniels. And at the time, Janet was working in the graduate office at Harvard. And I live in Boston. And so it was easy for me to pop over and meet Janet for lunch. And she (laughs) let me know about these two books. And one is Folk and Fairy Tales by Martin Hallett and Barbara Karasik and they no longer make this book it's the fourth edition and this is the book that I I see on my little flags that was my work partner in some ways for power to the princess and then when I went back to write high five to the hero I met with Janet again quickly before she moved away and she um let me know about this book Grimm's Bad Girls and Bold Boys, The Moral and Social Vision of the Tales by Ruth B. Boddingheimer. And that similarly was kind of like a place to check in anytime I was going to start a new story. I would think, okay, what have people already been writing, thinking, taking apart in the story that I'm about to work on? And one of the things that was super, that I still like, I love this book. I would love to, to sit down and reread it again, was the depth in which it permeates storytelling among people all over the world and there's this one reference where they talk about how many people in a room can finish the sentence my what big eyes you have little girl and know that the end of that sentence is oh all the better to see you with my dear and that something like the majority of the world's population can just complete that sentence or my, what big teeth you have, or my, what big ears you have, that everyone has a version of that story in their culture, in their tradition, in their life, and they kind of know what the end of that sentence is um, for them, which is, I was like, whoa! And immediately I was like, I want to test this theory. Uh, and I, like, wrote and called people and popped into, um, you know, other rooms in the house and was like, can you complete the sentence? <laughs> my, what big eyes you have. Um, See how many people could call that or could even just say, I don't remember what the rest of the sentence is, but that's part of and be able to point to it as Little Red Riding Hood.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Isn't that wild? I was totally blown away. Um, But it kind of makes sense. It is these references, the references to glass slippers, the references to... Um, coats of arms to rags to riches stories. They are foundational and they're quoted or borrowed from in all kinds of places. And that's actually one of the big thrills of writing this book, so seeing where else these kind of the motifs in these stories show up in art and music and storytelling consistently over time. Um, But they are just unbearably referential and persistently inspiring to people is really interesting. I'm Mm -hmm. like, what is it that makes these digestible and consumable and that people will consume kind of an excessive amount of these stories or motifs or ideas, um, that they're totally comfortable with that. Having it in your, on your, linens or your teacups and also coming through your stereo and also yeah in literature and film like that you can go through a day and have experienced like 20 separate references to Cinderella or a castle or a fairy tale um, is kind of overwhelming there's not other stuff that's like quite like that or where people will use turns of phrases like that, will say like, "Oh, it's a Cinderella story." They're talking about something completely different. Um, you know, they're talking about it's like a sports metaphor, and you're like, well, how, "What? How did this become appropriated in this interesting way?" And I think the other thing is an artist. I you asked too about, so like, what is it about fairy tales uh, that, of course, I hadn't realized? Like, this is what happens in work for me. I don't always know what i'm going to discover about myself as a maker or the work that i'm that i'm creating it's like this additional part of the process where i get to be woken up about something else about myself that i didn't even know and that was really exciting about this process too was discovering new things about myself as a writer as a creator just someone thinking through big you know life's big questions that was really fun. And I think what's nice about folk Tales and Fairy Tales is you don't feel alone in that work. I actually felt like, hey, you know what? I'm connected to like thousands of people who've also been trying to puzzle out these questions. Like why we like what we like, why we sometimes feel lonely, why we sometimes feel empty or astray from our origins or why we sometimes feel overcome with emotion or fear or intimacy or love. It's kind of fun. It's like, Oh, look at this. Um, it's this great irony in the ways in which these global stories have been kind of anglicized and kind of whitewashed or colonized. Yeah. It is kind of a metaphor. It's sort of a meta, but it's like, it's a metaphor for what's happening in these stories anyway. Sort of all, yeah. The men you just describe are sort of, um, you know, run-of-the-mill colonizer kind of characters come into a room, wreck something, and leave um, and feel like, oh, it's fine. (laughs) Someone else will straighten that up for me. Um, It's very much like uh, just sort of what's been permitted to happen um, in many ways throughout history. And I think the contrast is there's always, in addition to those people who do those things, there are also tons of people who are... Acting in other ways that are either in contrast to that or to agitate that or take those things apart, um, and those people are always there too. There have always been people who have acted otherwise or taken risks to decentralize power or claim power for themselves, but we just don't tell their stories in the same way. So it's a fun chance to think about how to reorganize and distribute power in in all of the stories, both in power to the princess and in high five to the hero, but particularly in the princess one, thinking about who has the power and why, and what are the choices they want to do
0: with it. I, I, I love it. Like, I, like I've said before, like I, I'm always drawn to this sort of stuff. I, I love watching characters that just don't put up with what's the norm anymore, badass women there these people exist and not just like badass women but just taking characters that you would think would be written for a male and then just going well like just take that gender away and p- give that character to anybody else it, why does it have to be the male saying those lines or it's telling that story why do they have to be the center i just i think that what you've done in the like these books is perfect in what they need to be doing People of color and you know queerness and all of this stuff—it's always been here. It'll yeah. always be here, right? It's it, it, like it's the it's fact that it's not new. We're just, it's not new. It's not new. And I think that's what's important is showing that it exists. It's it's always been there and it'll always be there. And read it, see it, experience it. You know, these people live next to you. They're your relative. <laughs> like you know, it's you and you are you are a part of that as well. And I think that's what's great. Uh, that's sort of a, a question that I'd like to ask is, I know yeah. that it's geared towards like initially kids, but how much of this was sort of in the writing? We sort of touched upon it a little bit. Um, how much of it was like, okay, this is for chil- like this is like children's book, you know, it's going to be in the children's section, but how much of this is? you know, geared towards adults? And was that an objective? Or when you talked about, like, the aunts and uncles, are they going to be buying them? <laughs> you know? Like,
1: yeah, um, I do. I Yeah, that's a nice question. I do write for a really wide readership. And the books are very, like, when I would finish a story, my editor Katie and I would be like, is this so heavy? Or is this so, like, part of a different stage of development. And then we really leaned heavily on the illustrator, Julie Berthiartu, who lives and works in Spain, who's wonderful, to bring these characters to life in a way that honored childhood. That's kind of how I talk about yeah. her work. Um, it's both accessible, it's playful, and it's youthful. Um, and so she really helps scale the some of the maybe developmentally mature content about which I'm writing and characters and choices and some of the ideas I'm interrogating. And she brings them to life in a way that feels very child-centered, which is really important to me that I'm always really eager to be sure that media for young people um, meets them where they are and then also like tugs them a little bit further Says, so like, you're because they're growing. Kids aren't static, <laughs> they're not like eight forever. They're eight going on nine, they're eight going on nine, 10, 11. So, I want them to be reading this and thinking, Oh, you know what? This reminds me of this something that I'm feeling now, and also giving me this glimpse of something I might be feeling in the future. And I also want my readers to be able to enjoy the books for as long as possible and not feel like I outgrew this, meh, and just sort of like being done with it. But I yeah I mean I definitely I'm I'm writing for that parent reader too or that cool aunt and uncle reader grandma and grandpa whoever who's reading with someone young and who would have done what I often have done as a parent which is edit while I read so I'll read something and then I'll be like yeah quick sidebar don't do this this is yucky male gaze stuff okay just wanted to mention that or I'll like correct it while I'm reading where I'm like this for me to just reread this horrible story about blackbeard is totally condoning all kinds of terrible stuff mostly to do with lack of consent and so do i want to actually reread that and put that out into the world do i want to say like here's what's happening in this story we're actually going to skip this because it's just so gross and we're not going to put a lot of attention into people who tell stories about the depict people this way making such unsafe choices for themselves and others. So I wanted, my goal is to make a story that you didn't want to skip parts, (laughs) cross parts out, or self-edit, where it's like, let's see it, you know, see if that's a goal I can, a bar I can raise to. And I think, you know, they're pretty word heavy, and there's a lot of kind of growing that a reader can do with them where there might be things that you don't quite get now and then later you'll be like oh that's a I've heard that word before kind of come back to it but yeah I wanted them to be enjoyable for the person that's reading and the person that's listening and for adults to sort of also in some ways see themselves validated in the pages of the books I know you're going to share our Cinderella story, but the story that comes to mind the most as we're talking is the princess and the pea, mm-hmm. which is a story about justifying one's existence, right? Sort of, that's something you mentioned before. I, I do hope that the book in many ways just justifies everyone's existence in it, in the pages. And so that no one ever feels that they have to do that work themselves. Um, It just says you're here, you're included, but in the, traditional story of princess the pea the princess is asked again and again to justify her existence and um sort of credentials as a princess through this like crazy you know like pee under the mattress sleepover thing which is all kinds of pro- <laughs> it's like it's <laughs> red flags red flags red flags but what i really wanted to do with that story was say this is a relationship that's kind of unresolved in the ways that we're used to seeing relationships resolved. And it's two people who are trying to puzzle out what it's like to try different people on through dating and what it's like to form a connection with someone and what different shape that that connection can be. And I got a lot of questions in the process of writing it and at the end where people were like, but do they end up together? (laughs) and I was like I am not going to resolve that in this story it's really really important and it reminded me of a really close peer of mine who um the two of us were having a coffee one day and she said you're the only person who doesn't ask me about this relationship that I'm in with my partner and what the resolution of it is going to be and I was like I'm the only person you know who doesn't make an assumption about what that partnership is like for you? And she was like, yeah, I'm the only person. And it just sort of like this light went off in my head that I was like, you know what, there are readers and there are parents and there are families who are also living that and don't want to have to justify that. Who want to be able to say to their young person, yeah, the grownups in your life, yeah, maybe haven't figured this out in a way that's satisfying for everyone, mm-hmm. but it works for our family or it works in our home. And we love you and care about you and we care about each other, but this is what our family looks like. or this is what our life is like. And to kind of take away that expectation that is a social expectation. It's actually not like a human one. It's just a socially constructed set of expectations that are like, oh, are you going to end up this cohesive permanent union? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I'm definitely from a generation where I – Myself, I'm a child of of multiple divorce, and my peers are, I don't know if any of us have intact um, parent unions. And so it felt really false and nutty for me to keep sort of perpetuating this idea that there are these ways in which adult relationships are resolved that are fixed. Didn't quite feel truthful. And I do try and always tell the truth. It's something that I talk about when I do school visits or other visits or work, work with kids. Even though I write make believe and fiction, I do in that always try and tell the truth, uh, which is what makes my writing hard to write sometimes. Because um, I'm writing about, yeah, when real things that are really hard uh, for all of us.
0: Was there any fairy tale that you just were like, I'm not touching that? <laughs> Right, or, you to, or is there, was there, or is there anyone that you wanted to do, but it just, just didn't work out? Like, so you know, you're just like, this is like the unfixable or, you know, <laughs> it's just not, it's not meshing. Like, it, just, it always blew me away when, I never knew what was gonna come after the first mm. few. But that's what I love. Like after The Little Mermaid, which is the oh. second story, I'm one of those people that like, I'll watch a movie and I'm like, it's this. And my family mm-hmm. says, what do you mean? I'm like, you just, it's the I Scooby-Doo, know. it's the Scooby-Doo effect, that's all you gotta do, is just look at the one person, and you can figure out any sort of thing in storytelling. You just Scooby-Doo it. And after <laughs> Little Mermaid, I was like, I don't know where these are gonna go, because it's always, it's just, the characters Ooh. always just have this ability to go, no, I think I'm gonna go do this now, right? <laughs> it's just always, you know, it's like, this person's being treated poorly, and they go, well, I'm not taking that, so I'm gonna go do this now. And sometimes they just go do a thing and I'm like, oh, what? They're now this and oh, wait, so they're going this route and then they just decided to do this. I'm like, great, I'm in. Like, uh, So again, because there's those minefields of like where to go and what to do, Is there was there anything that you're just like, I'm not touching that or, or something that you wanted to do that you just haven't been able to do yet?
1: That's such a good question. I think what happened was sort of the opposite. Like I think I would started out a little more trepidatious. And then as I got into it, I just felt more empowered to be like, yeah, actually this story is about consent, done. Let's like rip it open. And I, there was like a, I wrote um, Thumbelina during sort of like this apex of press around, unfortunately, like several very troubling, high profile predatory cases involving young women in the entertainment and sports industries. And I was really listening to their voices, giving testimony or building the Me Too movement or whatever it was, and actually feeling more emboldened to just like go for it and be like, actually, let's just make this super clear. This character has, is asking this person to change and, and behave in ways that they're not comfortable. Let's just like go there. Where I think... Before I might have been a little more like, oh, it's a weekend like tip show around it or like, I don't know, maybe it's, and instead I was like, once I got through sort of like the first three stories and to be fair, they're not um, organized in the book in the order in which I wrote them. So sometimes Mm. I'm like, oh, what, what's this going here? But I think before our call, I was looking back in my file, I did Beauty and the Beast first and then Cinderella And it wasn't like till a little bit later that I was into things like Thumbelina and Zadie, which is Scheherazade. I think that was one in particular that was really complicated. And at first we weren't sure how to make stories that come from Arabian Nights palatable, accessible, and anti-racist. That was really, that was... That one was particular work in those three spaces and really pushing ourselves and pushing Julia, the illustrator, to really um, be sure that that story acknowledged, yeah, a history of Silk Road, of opium trade, of the exploitation of people from the Middle East and South Asia and East Asia. And this kind of confluence of um, Kind of side effects of colonialism that were really difficult and which created that canon of storytelling. That one in particular was really interesting because it was written as kind of this exoticization of these people that were being exploited. So that one's a really different origin story of the literature in a way that's different from stories that were appropriated by Grimm's and, and made popular. Um, or things like that. Um, so that was really different. That was a, a tricky one, but I was really happy with it. i um, really happy with, I had spent a lot of time researching and learning about women in tech in, in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, in um, Muslim communities and thinking about what that experience could be like, um, what that might look like. And also even what Silicon Valley looks like in, the United States and sort of some challenges um, and limits uh, to how that's expressed. Yeah. So I, th- yeah, I mean, that one really comes to mind. I think part of it too was some, in the end, the stories I also wanted to tell were the stories of men in these, in this Canon. Um, and with that sort of where high five did the hero was born. And one of the most important ones was, the story of Prince Charming because he is sort of this kind of like a prop. He's not even like a fleshed out human and it's such a disservice um, to the reader to just Mm -hmm. have characters that serve very little function. It's sort of hard for me as a writer to read work like that where I'm like, why do you have characters in here that have no... And do anything, yeah, it just is demoralizing and what and what that's like, what it's like to mm. read stories where the person you could identify with is kind of like empty and useless. that's yucky too yeah um,
0: yeah um the so when you when you' when you're writing these characters and doing that research, how much of them are based off of? like actual people like you've obviously done the research like you're saying um you know some of the names are slightly changed or you know they're from a different background than you would like traditionally expect and so it, it feels like even at the beginning of the books you know it says like you're like i went to this place and i met these people and <laughs> but then it's really fair tale you know i'm like okay wait how much of that is true? Did you really go to a place and meet these people, or is this like a fictionalized <laughs> intro about a fairy tale? <laughs> right? So I'm like, I'm not wait, how much of this is the reality? How much of that is your sort of discovering different people? And then are you taking them and implementing them into the story going, oh, I think you are this person I kind of know is a little bit like this? Or are you seeing something, you know, about something in the news or in the world that you're just interested in and you're like, oh, I think that connects to this fairy tale and then sort of adding that and
1: whatnot. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of both. I think in halfway through writing Power to the Princess, I realized that I was writing about friendships. And so I just like went for it. And I was like, let me just really like think about the people in my life who, I count as friends and what that means to me and what I get out of those relationships and what those people are telling me about what's complex about living their own lives. Um, And so much of that, yeah, much of the depth of the characters that I'm trying to build are based on real people for whom I'm in real relationships with, where I'm like, oh, I'm learning from you. You remind me of, of what's happening in the life of this character. Um, and some of it is a little bit bigger. It would be like I mentioned about Thumbelina, like things that were just happening sort of writ large in, in public media and spaces and feeling like, oh, and, you know, this is like an uh, analogy to exactly what's happening in the story. I create these kind of research tables and mood boards for every single one of my stories. I have a background in fine art and film and video. And so I craft as a writer with the traditions of cinema in mind. So I plot character arcs um, in a very screenwriterly way. And so because of that, I also create these sort of like boards, for lack of a better word, just as I would for any kind of production. That's like, oh, this is the mood for the environment. And these are what some of the character inspirations look like. And these are the, this is the music that I'm listening to. These are the... Plays that I'm listening to. I listen to lots and lots of musical theater writing, <laughs> Power to the Princess specifically. It started because I would listen to ballets and musicals that uh, quote or reference or are inspired by these stories. So I'm listening to Sleeping Beauty, I'm listening to Wicked, I'm listening to Into the Woods, I'm listening to. Uh, Le Miz, these sort of like epic journey stories um, while I'm writing. So I'm like trying to build these little like immersive pods that I can pop into while I'm working on a story. And so a lot of those include, yeah, kind of historic references, but also much more contemporary references. Because we also, we wanted the books and like the illustrations as well, just sort of sit in this mystery time where they look like you they look like referential mm-hmm. for young people oh that looks like my sister that looks like me that was like my dad That looks yeah. like someone I know in life my teacher my babysitter but also kind of in this magical space where things could happen like I could go to a conference and meet a bunch of princesses which is the most popular kid question I get which is is that real and did you go there And it's sort of, I offer that very unsatisfying adult to kid answer. That's like, whatever you think is real. If you believe (laughs) in the magic of these stories, then yes, I did do that. And if you're skeptical and you don't think that I did, then maybe you're right. Maybe I did it. Yeah. But I don't, I don't want to spoil. I'm not going to be the one (laughs) to tell anyone what the limits of their own imagination are. Right. Yeah. No, I, I really love sort of building the idea of yeah of of kind of magical realism right away because i think that's really really important that's something i want readers to always to know right from the beginning that there's parts of this that will feel real and parts of this that will feel magical and that those two things can exist together in the same place all the time you can you don't have to you don't have to separate those two you can you can dream big in reality. I think that's really important, especially in a time like we're going through right now. That is very emotionally complicated for all of us as a kind of global community. And to sort of be able to hold those two things at once—both um, things that are real and things that are made up and, and imaginary—we need right. to be able to do those two things at once. I yeah. think.
0: I was going to ask you about this uh, this third book. I, I haven't been able to, I mean, I'm going to have to probably order it. Cause I, I was like, Oh, I can't find it anywhere else. But you were saying it's, uh, is, is it co-written with your husband?
1: Yes. This, okay. So, so I make, and I haven't myself. Looked at
0: it, so I just was <laughs> like, I'm not going to look at it yet. I'm just going to ask you what it's about and just get it from you. But this. Uh,
1: yeah. My husband, Ethan Moreau and I, um, have been working together since we met and we, Worked together. I was his kind of director of photography for a long time. He is a large scale graphite and ink artist. He makes huge, huge drawings and wall installations and things like this. And so he works from photography a lot and from performance. So we started out working together. He would dress up in these uh, like ridiculous, weird magical outfits and we would go out into the world and i would take these photographs and then we would work on building these composite drawings in photoshop with all kinds of weird references and appropriation and yeah i don't know just weird stuff and put them together and then he, they become these big drawings for him um and something we did once together was build a whole body of work that was around a short film called dust which you could find out in the world I think it's on our website tomorrows.com and then our lives sort of evolved and we um, have two kids and so the way in which we work together needed to change. I could no longer like hang out on sets with my camera all day. <laughs> life looked different and I had my career had changed too I'd taken a different position as an educator. I was a literacy specialist and a teacher for many years and then I ran a kind of regional literacy program. So it kept me more in the office and out of the studio. So we still really wanted to work together. So we started I sort of had we had this connection to children's literature and publishing and my same friend who invited me to write Power to the Princess um, invited Ethan and I to make a wordless picture book together. I have a real fondness for wordless books. I think they have a really play an important role in language and learning and literacy as being a kind of initial access point for storytelling and story sharing. And they give a lot of agency to the reader because they can make up their own story, but there is something there that's happening um, that gives them clues about, yeah, the language or the characters or the things that are happening. So our first book, The Whale, came out kind of a long time ago, maybe four or five years ago, gosh, maybe more. And um, we work with live actors. So I grew up as like a kid actor in Minneapolis. And so I have such affection for child talent and community theater and just that world. It wasn't, it gave me so much. I didn't want to walk away and never see it again. So we hire young actors. It's so, so fun. No one's ever been in a kid's book before. It's like a fun sort of pitch to put out into the world. Like, would you like to be featured for all time? And so the whale features two young actors who are started as rivals in a kind of competition to see a mysterious whale and end up as teammates. And um, they take ages to make because we use live talent. So I cast in front of these like live photo shoots and then we go into... Photoshop and put them into the world of our story. And then we project the images we've created and then they're all hand drawn. And so the pictures for the whale are probably like this big, they're really quite large. And so when they're done, we need a little bit of a break. But then the following three years, we worked on this newest book called Zero Local. And it's the story of a uh, subway train car full of passengers And uh, we call them Big Passenger, but they're kind of a benevolent stranger. They join the community on the train, and they're an agent of change. And they bring a world of art-making and kind of careful consideration and change the mood on the train. And every day, Big Passenger comes and makes a little piece of art for the driver of the train, and the sort of affection and kindness in the train car grows. And very much like our mentor text, which is Mary Poppins, one day the benevolent stranger feels that it's time to leave. And they leave and what they left behind is kind of the legacy of their creative work. But the train wasn't entirely ready to receive their gift. So it starts to descend into a little bit of tension, but there's one young person on the train and she has watched Big Passenger the entire time. We call her Little Passenger. And when things get particularly tense on the train and there's sort of a fight busting out between two passengers, she claims that space that big passenger had had and she makes something beautiful to change the trajectory of of life in the train car. And it's sort of a pay it forward story. At the end, her gesture kind of extends out into the world of the kind of urban train riding community. Um, And it's this idea of... Yeah, that art as kindness is contagious. It's very very sweet. Thien and I are um, partial to kind of dark and maudlin stories and storytelling. So it's actually a very good challenge for us to think about how to capture sweetness and really validate that and say that sweetness is just as important as every other feeling uh, that you can have. So it's very sweet and we cast a bunch of actors and we also really are as artistic job creators, we're really um, focused on who's not being cast, who's not being employed. And so it was really important to us to cast a number of, yeah, of of people who are new to acting, people who are um, trans and non-binary actors who are looking for roles that are hard to find and young talent who are just trying to figure out if they like this, if they like performing, what that's like for them. So we had one child talent and we actually also cast her mother, um, which was really fun. And then an older kid, and then the rest were all kind of young adults. It was really, really fun. They take forever. We built a set. So we like, built this whole train <laughs> in the studio. And then, yeah, we spend just ages building the composite images. And then we actually have, not currently, but at the time, we had two studio assistants who we work with who helped make all of this possible um, and work very, very hard for our vision, which is really nice. And then we start a new graphic novel kind of post-apocalyptic adventure story in August, basically. Um, We'll start developing test images for that, and that because of budget, we are not working with live talent. We're working with maquettes and models, so little puppets that we'll make that will live in these worlds. Because there is a lot of in publishing, there's a lot of fussy changes that are different from working in in the art world. There, you know, we'll get notes back that are like, "Can her braid be on the left side?" You know, and you're like, "No." I spent like 10 grand on a photo shoot and her braid is on the, no, I'm sorry. I can't do that. But when you work with puppets and maquettes, you can do that. You can say like, oh, well, let's put a hat on them. Let's take the hat off them. Let's have two of them. You can have a little bit of that.
0: That's, uh, that's so fascinating. It's so cool. It's <laughs> pretty that's wild. It's so cool. We hope you enjoyed this bonus episode with author Vita Murrow. You can learn more about her books by clicking the link in the episode bio and follow her on Instagram and on Twitter. We'll leave those links in there as well. You can learn more about the work she's doing with her husband as well, Ethan Murrow, at twomurrows.com and also follow their Instagram and Twitter accounts. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show if you have not already because next week we have another episode coming your way about cinderella from scotland with a guest host bell from the thirst world problems podcast until then i'm rpj stay safe